Good morning, Grace Church of Orange. What a privilege it is to open up God's Word with you today. It's really easy for a church to get off track, to lose its focus, to get distracted, and forget why it even exists. There are many sad examples, past and present. I think of the message of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation. That comes to my mind. I think of a restaurant in Orange that used to be a church, and I wonder what happened there. A church can get lost, much like when you're hiking or driving or riding your bike and you, you lose your way. You don't use the GPS or you don't use your map or you don't use your compass. In Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch is a great compass for us. It's a great example of a church that was zeroed in on why it existed. It was zeroed in on its purpose, on what was most important. And it's an example for us to learn from so that we would not lose our way as a church and as believers within the church. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. We stand in honor of God and His Word. It's a privilege for us to read the Word of God. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out to, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are here we thank you that by your spirit you use your word in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would change us, that you would convict us. 
that you would challenge us and that you would empower us to do what you reveal to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There's a beautiful sound that I love to hear. Pages turning in the Bible and a baby crying. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because a baby crying tells you that something's alive. That God has given us a wonderful gift. And, and, and the pages turning in the Bible tell me that people are actually getting into their, into their Bibles. And I realize you can't hear the swipe. You can't hear the swipe on, on the electronic device. But I guess the sound of the, the swoosh of the swipe is also beautiful. So we are in Acts, we are in Acts chapter 13 today, we have been through 12 chapters already in this book, this beautiful book, and this book traces the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem. I've given you a simple outline in the past, I will give it to you again, it's very easy to remember, it's based on Acts 1.8, where Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll, receive, you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So chapters 1 through 7 are about the gospel in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, about the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to 28, the largest section of this book, is the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we're starting this last section in Acts, though it is the longest. You come to Acts chapter 13 and you come to a milestone in the early church. It's applicable to us in many ways. I will put it like this, and I'm going to describe the church in Antioch like this. It was a spirit-filled, word-saturated church. And everything they did, and what we'll see today, what they did is based upon that, that they were filled with the Spirit, they were controlled by the Spirit of God, and they were saturated with the Word of God. Ephesians 5.18 tells us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled, be controlled by the Spirit. The counterpart to Ephesians 5.18 is Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly. So a Spirit-filled church is a word-saturated church. A word-saturated church is a spirit-filled church. This is the kind of church that the Antioch church was. They embraced Christ's mission because they were spirit-filled and word-saturated. And it's something that we must aspire to so that we don't lose our way. So that we don't lose our way as a church and that we don't lose our way as Christians in a church. Acts is the story of Christ's continuing work in his witnesses through, through his witnesses for his purposes. You see all the way through the book this happening. Jesus is continuing his work in his people for his glory. He calls them. He, the Holy Spirit indwells them. God is healing people, giving credence to the gospel message. People are preaching the gospel. And Jesus is purifying his church. You see that in chapter 5 very painfully. 
And he is stretching their faith. He is stretching their faith through trials, through persecution. And they're getting scattered because of it. And the gospel keeps going as the people get scattered. They're going. They're reaching more people. They're speaking. They're, they're, people are repenting. They're repenting of their sins. They're turning to Jesus. And, and we even see, we saw this last time in the book of Acts, God is responding to evil that is coming upon the church. Quite painfully for us, we, we realize that sometimes God allows evil. We also see that he thwarts evil. And we know ultimately because of the shed blood of Christ at the cross, he has victory over evil. He has conquered evil. You get to chapter 13 and it gets pretty exciting because the church is now sending. Sending people out on ministry. They're embracing Christ's mission and it's a sign of a healthy church when they're sending people out. The church at Antioch is a church that God used. It was spirit-filled. It was word-saturated. It was used of the spirit, spirit-empowered, spirit-led, spirit-controlled, and drenched with the Bible. Everything they did was built upon that, and so they embraced Christ's mission. He had, he had given them a very simple mission, Acts 1.8. You're going to be my witnesses. Holy Spirit's going to come on you. You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He had given a... a uh, a larger, a larger statement in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And he gives the assurance, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So they're embracing Christ's mission. They were on mission with Jesus. They, they, were, they were leading the way for churches like ours. Because we can learn from the church at Antioch. We can learn from their example. Now what exactly can we learn? What exactly can we learn from this church in Antioch? What I want you to see today are five marks of a spirit-filled, word-saturated church that embraces Christ's mission. Five marks of a church that embrace Christ's mission. First thing I want you to see is in verse 1. It says that in the church there, there were prophets and teachers. The first thing this church had, and it's the mark of a spirit-filled, word-saturated church, is there was spiritual leadership. You don't see one person driving everything in this church. You see Jesus driving his church. If you're in a church where one person makes all the decisions, you're in the wrong church because it's not spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership in the church is a plurality of leaders that God gifts to the church and uses for his glory. Spiritual leadership. Now, we know about this church in Antioch. It, it started in chapter 11 where we saw that the church in Antioch was made up of both Jew and Gentile. We saw that they were first called Christians in Antioch, which was a name, by the way, Christians was a name of derision, it was a name of identification, it was a name they rejoiced in because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. When you suffer for the name of Christ, as Peter says, rejoice. 
Now we know that church grew, and we know that when it grew, the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to be their pastor. And then as it grew even more, Barnabas brought Saul in to help with new converts, to disciple new believers. And what you see is Jesus continuing his work through his witnesses in this church. Now when you get to chapter 13, you'll notice something very awesome, by the way. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And you notice the plural. Plural prophets, plural teachers. People chosen and gifted by God to serve Christ in his church. And there were prophets in that church. Now, not just Barnabas and Saul, but God had given three more that are now identified here. And prophets were preachers of the word. They're preaching the word of God. They're instructing congregations. Sometimes in the book of Acts, they got new revelation from God, but it was never new doctrinal revelation. It was always practical revelation, where to go or what to do. And the prophets in the apostolic church were replaced with pastor-teacher evangelists as we, would, as we would categorize them today. And the reason we know is by the word of God. Why there are not apostles and prophets in the church today. Ephesians 2 verse 20 tells us that God built the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now you don't keep laying a foundation over and over again. It's built on Christ, and that foundation of apostles and prophets went away at some point. What you have in this church are, are elders, really, who are preaching the word of God, prophets. You've also got teachers, teachers who are explaining rather than proclaiming God's word. They're giving clear understanding of what the scriptures say. Now, all five of the, of the men that are listed in, in the church in Antioch filled both roles. They were both prophets and teachers. Paul was also an apostle. So what you've got in this church are preachers and teachers, exhorters, explainers, and apostles were proto-elders. You've got the, the apostles who were proto-elders. So this here, these five, you've got one apostle in there. It's a group of elders in a church identified by their gifting and by their function. They are preachers and teachers in the church. And what you'll know right away, because you know something of, of Saul's former life, is that God chooses not by performance, not by track record, but by his good pleasure. God gives the church three more preachers and teachers to share the load with Barnabas and Saul. We know a lot about Barnabas. He's known as the son of encouragement. He's a Levite. means he's a Jewish priest. He's from Cyprus. So he's a Jew of the diaspora the, of the dispersion scattered beyond judah into gentile lands he would have known greek culture it would be very helpful as they go to gentiles and then you have simeon called niger niger is latin for black he had black skin that's really all we know about him we've got lucius of cyrene we know that one group from cyprus and cyrene first went to antioch and brought the gospel to greeks Lucius is a Latin name. It probably means he was brought up in a Roman culture. Again, helpful with evangelizing Gentiles. And the third new person here is Manan. It's a Greek form of Hebrew name. He's a Hellenistic Jew. 
raised in the upper crust of society because he's raised with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas, the third of the five Herods that I had uh, introduced uh, several weeks ago, but he's the son of Herod the Great who ruled Galilee from 4 BC to AD 39. And Manaean is what is called a lifelong friend of Herod, literally foster brother. They grew up in the same household. He basically would be a prince as we know them and knew the ruling dynasty very intimately. He was in that household. So he was well-educated, he was wealthy, and he was you know, a very, um, very well thought of in, in the higher level of society there. I think it's a mystery of God's grace that he could pick from the same household two men who were so different. One becomes a Christian leader, the other kills John the Baptist. One becomes an elder and a preacher and a teacher in his church, the other takes part in Jesus' trial. In the sovereignty of God, he chose Manan, and we know, we know from the gospel record, we know from our own experience that good and evil can come from the same household. We know from Romans chapter 9 that God chooses from his own sovereign good pleasure. The last one named here is Saul. We know a bit about him. He's a former Pharisee. The church's worst persecutor becomes its best proclaimer. He was a grievous sinner before coming to know Christ, but God made him a grace-filled servant of God, a humble man. God chooses not based on our performance, praise God, but by his good pleasure. And he, he gives these men to the church. They have spiritual leadership, and it's a plurality of leadership. Plurality of leadership under one leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we have at Grace Church of Orange, a plurality of leadership, an elder group. I love our elder group. We are a very diverse group of men who all love Jesus, we all love the word of God, we all love the church, we all want to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to our care very lovingly and humbly and effectively, but we are also very different men. And we, we, we balance each other out. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Titus 1 has qualifications of elders and so does 1 Timothy 3. I have not run across an elder who came to Grace Church and basically said, look, I meet all the qualifications. I'm your best candidate. Lay hands on me now because you don't want to pass this opportunity up. Now, you don't come kicking and screaming either. There's this delicate balance of aspiring to something and being terrified that you might not measure up. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You don't come kicking and screaming. You don't get forced to be an elder in a church. That's not biblical. You want to do it. And then it says, therefore, if you aspire to this, then you must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, for, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That's tough when you got five kids like me. 
In fact, one of my kids tells me, you're the little brother I never wanted. They're keeping me in line, though. They're, 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 they're discipling me. Now, seriously, I, I, I love my kids, and I, it's a high calling uh, to shepherd young lives. It says that you, you're not supposed to put a brand new believer into an elder role. Why? So that you don't become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. And you should be well thought of by outsiders so that you will not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Every elder I know, all the ones at Grace, tremble at this list. I don't know any elders who, who say, wow, you know, I got that wired. What else can I do? We're more of the, um, of the attitude that we know our own hearts and we know where we fall short and we wonder at times if we're really qualified. Let me tell you something about the, the group of five at the Antioch church and I can tell you about them because I know our elders at Grace, whom God has gifted and, and God is using to shepherd the flock. The men at Grace are humble men who are also bold. And you know I like to put humble and bold together because I think it's very biblical. Jesus says, I am humble and gentle in heart. But Jesus was also very bold to say exactly what needed to be said. And you see the apostles doing the same. You see church leaders doing the same. And so humble and boldness because those are intention and balance just like grace and truth are. But our men at Grace are free in Christ. They know who they are in Christ. They know they've been forgiven in Christ. I loved Brian's exposition of Psalm 51 last week. How we have forgiveness in Christ because of God's mercy. That God restores us. And we know we are being restored in Christ. And we are reconciled to God and, and to others. Every elder at Grace Orange is a fallen, sinful man who sometimes fails, but we look to Jesus to give us everything he says he will give his children. And we keep each other in check. And we have you to help us stay accountable as well because we are involved in, in your lives in the body. Here's what I know about the five in Antioch because of, of the ten I know at Grace. The men at Grace admit when they blow it with people. We admit when we blow it with each other. Sometimes we have to ask each other's forgiveness and we don't expect people to be perfect and we allow room to grow. That's what these leaders were like. They had spiritual leadership. They were preachers and teachers in the church filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit and saturated with the Word of God. They weren't coming up with their own stuff. They were, they were giving them what God was giving the church. There's something else I know about this group of five in Antioch because I know our group at Grace is that they prayed for and with each other and the flock. They bared burdens. Sometimes it takes someone who comes from outside the flock and becomes a part of the flock to alert us to things that we are weak and remiss about. That has happened in the last year or so about prayer. And we were convicted 
of that, that we realized as elders and as church leaders, we were not praying as fervently as we ought to together for the body. Well, sure, we're all praying alone and we all have people that we are connected with and a lot of great relationships at Grace, but we realized we have a prayer list that we're kind of giving lip service to. And so we said, we're going to start praying through that list. Our staff, our deacons and deaconesses, our elders, even on Friday mornings, anyone is welcome at 6.30, right up in front here. We have a group of four or five or six people every week that comes and we pray for everything on the prayer list. There's two pages, really tiny, you know, really tiny print even. You got to use your glasses for it. And, and you think, well, how do I get on the prayer list? Just give us some prayer requests. If you haven't given them to us, we're praying for you in general because we're praying for every household in this local assembly, for our marriages, for our parenting, for our relationships. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. I believe that with all my heart. If you've got a church that is led by one person who's calling all the shots, that church will lose its way at some point. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. I like to say a good elder board is more like salsa than tomato paste. I love tomato paste. You can do a lot of things with tomato paste. Italians know how to do great things with garlic and tomato paste and, and olive oil. But think about salsa for a moment. There's a lot of different ingredients that get molded together to create a beautiful mix and they balance each other out. That's a good elder board. That's good spiritual leadership. God uses different giftings and different personalities to have a plurality of leadership in a local church that will steer things in a way that honors God. God has given a unique unity that you don't see anywhere else in the world. He calls his body to be united in a very unique way. The gospel brings us together. The gospel unites us. We say it so often, but the gospel brings together people in the church that probably wouldn't get along outside the church. And I realize that people have trouble getting along in the church sometimes. But you, when you remember the gospel, when you remember what Jesus did, your perspective changes. Your heart changes. The church in Antioch stayed on course, and it was an example to us because they had spiritual leadership. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they had spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. Now some of you immediately are thinking singing and songs and the kind of music you like or don't like and how loud or how low you like the sound and what kind of instruments you'd rather listen to and so on and so forth. And if that's the case, if that's your idea of worship, you're missing the point entirely as God has given us a picture of worship in the Bible. Because worship is about all of your life. When you come to know Christ, you are changed by the gospel and you want to pour out your heart in worship towards God all the time. For his magnificent grace, for his mercy, for his forgiveness, for his peace, for his joy in Christ. Verse 2 tells us they were, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. 
They're doing two things here. They're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. Now, we narrow worship down and we change the meaning. It's not just about singing songs that we like in church. That can actually be idolatry if our hearts are not in the right place and if we're judgmental about it. Worship is your whole heart, your whole being, who you are, everything about you, everything you are and do directed towards God in worship. Thanksgiving, gratitude. Think of the early church, Acts 2.42, what they devote themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the word of God. Fellowship, breaking of bread, remembering the Lord's death on our behalf, his broken body and shed blood, and, and prayer. Now, singing is a part of the Christian life. I love it how Brian was talking about singing last week. Um, there's, there's some differences between me and him. Some people think we look alike, you know, and I'm 20 years older, but some people, you know, some people think we look alike, but I'm a really good singer. I just want you to know, okay? Um, so here's the thing, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly and Sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord, right? How? By singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We should be singing. We should be rejoicing no matter how good or how bad you think you are. We should be rejoicing alone and in groups. We should be singing the praises of God. We, we should be excited about that because God has changed our hearts. Now, what kind of worship were they engaged in here? What exactly were they doing? You look at that word and it says they were worshiping. They were worshiping. Some Bibles say they were serving. The worshiping they were doing describes priestly service. Like priests who ministered in the tabernacle, Exodus 28, 41. They were, they were serving in a leadership role in the church and their service was an act of worship to God. So if you serve in the church, if you're an elder, pastor, deacon, deaconess, Sunday school leader, home group leader, Bible class leader, you serve in any way, that ought to be an act of worship to God. It shouldn't be, well, no one else would do it. You know, I had to do it, or, you know, I'm resenting it, or I don't like it anymore. It should be an act of worship. This is what they were doing. They were, they were doing what Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13 says, offering to God a sacrifice of praise, spiritual sacrifice to him. That would have included for these five Prayer, preaching and teaching the word of God, shepherding the flock of God, caring for needs in the body, and so on. They were worshiping, and they were fasting. Now, a lot of people say, well, I, I fasted because uh, I forgot to eat. I was so busy, I forgot to eat. No, you, you weren't fasting, you forgot. You forgot your burrito, okay? Well, some people say, well, I was fasting because I need to lose some weight, you know, trim down a little bit. Or I'm fasting because I need to more, be more healthy. That is not biblical fasting, folks. Biblical fasting is purposeful. You are saying, I'm going to do without food so I can pray, so I can seek God's will, so I can seek his face, so I can be in a spiritual frame of mind and have my focus on spiritual things and seek God's direction, and I'm going to not eat so I can pray. That's spiritual fasting. That's biblical fasting. As I've been studying this this week, I've been very convicted that as your pastor and as one of your elders, I am not leading the way very well in this regard. And I've got hung up on something. 
I told you this recently regarding giving, didn't I? I said, you know, Jesus says don't make a big fuss about your giving and don't call attention to it. Well, he also said that about fasting too. But there's a balance in Scripture. Let's talk about giving for a moment. Jesus said don't make a big deal when you're giving and tell everyone all about it and blow trumpets. But Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said, you know what, people? You promised to give and you're not coming through on your promise. You need to do that. You need to take an offering now so that when I come, I don't have to wait for it. There's a place to talk about giving in the church. And here in, in chapter 13 of Acts, they knew they were fasting. The group was fasting. The church was fasting. So there is a place and I know I have been reluctant to do that because Jesus says don't make a show of things like that. Forgetting the balance of scripture that sees the church fasting together. Focused on seeking God's will to such an extent that they choose to pray rather than eat. Now I realize that if we call for a potluck, your mouth starts watering and we call for a prayer meeting, you got something else to do. And I know this because I'm just like you. Potluck, whoo, let's go. Can we do chili? Can we have chicken? What, what, what do we got? Prayer. I'm telling you, coming 6.30 in the morning on Friday mornings is the hardest thing I do all week. Seriously, it's the hardest thing I do all week. And I'm so glad so glad that by God's grace, I've been able to make that a part of my life. But I'm telling you, there are so many, the pillow is so comfy on Friday mornings. Because any good thing you want to do that would honor God is going to have its enemy. Okay, so the church and the leaders are worshiping God, they're doing the priestly service to God, they're offering sacrifices of praises to God, and they're fasting. And at that very moment, the Holy Spirit speaks. Now this is a very notable quote, it's the first quote of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And by the way, the way the Holy Spirit said set apart basically means right now. You're not waiting six months to go through language school. You're not waiting to get prepared and write applications and all these other things. They're going now. And you see the church immediately obey and send them away right away. They were willing to give up their, their brightest and their best to serve God's purposes. God calls the church sends. Verse 3, after fasting and praying, they lay hands on them and send them off. Immediately. What does it mean to lay hands on someone? You've seen us do that here. We have new leaders, maybe new, uh, new deacons and deaconesses, whatever, and we, we lay hands on them. We have someone going out to a, to a foreign field, uh, going to share the gospel somewhere, and we lay hands on them before we pray for them to go. What does that mean? What is that? Well, laying on of hands is an outward symbol of our partnership and our recognition of God's calling on someone's life to ministry. They were sent by the church. And by the way, they're accountable to the church. You look, when we get into chapter 14, verse 26, 
they come back and give a report. So our missions moments, those are biblical. Reporting what happened, what God did. The church sends them right away. But make no mistake about it, the church is not the primary sender because, because the next verse tells us that being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. The church sent them as a secondary sender, acknowledging that the Holy Spirit was sending them out. It's based on God's choosing and, and the church discerning. We don't jump at every fly that hits the water. We're committed to a process of discerning the will of God, but we want to be ready to move as soon as God makes it clear. I rarely make a decision alone. I mean, little decisions, sure, I, I make those decisions alone. But a, a decision that is going to have ramifications on anybody else, I seek advice, I seek wisdom. My wife, fellow elders, fellow pastors, fellow members of the body of Christ. Just recently, a person came to me and the missions team and said, I want you to pray about an opportunity I have to go on a ministry trip in a foreign country. We are very privileged to, to pray with this person. And we said, well, why don't the five of us, the six of us pray for a week and then we'll come back together again and just see what God reveals to us. And every one of us had a red light, kind of a caution flag. And we, and we came back a week later and we gave some feedback. We said, you know, we don't think you should go to that. But there's this other ministry opportunity that we actually think you should go with. And we told the person, we are with you no matter what. Whatever you choose, we love you, we support you, we're with you. And a couple days later, I followed up with the person. I said, how are you doing with your decision making? And they said, I'm really confused. The reason why, this person said, well, the group that invited me has taught me that I need to hear a word from God, a specific word from God to me. And, and I've been taught at Grace that I need to read the word and pray and get good advice from other believers. But now I've got a third thing coming at me. Because the group that invited me told me, we heard from God that you're supposed to go and you're wrong and your church is wrong. It was very confusing, very disheartening. Praise God that he brought about a good result as a group of people prayed without any agenda but the will of God. A friend of mine has a business motto that goes like this, always serving. That should be your motto as a Christian. I'm always serving everywhere I'm at. Here's the kind of mission support request letter I want to receive. Hello, Mike, how are you doing? I'm glad, I'm glad I could write you this letter and I hope your family's doing well. And I have an opportunity to go somewhere else to share the gospel and, and, and Christ's story and his love. And I just want you to know that in my church, I've been doing that all the time and where I live, I'm, I'm sharing the gospel and sharing the love of Jesus and sharing his story with anyone I can and I'm taking the opportunities that come my way and now, I, it looks like I get to go and work with some different people doing much of the same thing. And I've been serving God here. And God has put it on my heart to serve him somewhere else for a time in, in an area that has less of a witness for Christ. That's the kind of letter I want to get. 
I want to know that a person is going, has actually been serving Jesus here, so when they go there, we've got more confidence that they're going to do that. And all of it bathed and drenched in prayer. God's army does not advance by human ingenuity and gifting. It advances on its knees, dependent upon God. This church in Antioch, what a, what a model of spiritual leadership, of spiritual worship. And the third thing I want you to notice is spiritual ministry. Spiritual ministry. That those who were sent, they go preaching. That's what they were doing before. They were doing what God called them to do. They, the sent ones went proclaiming. Verse 4, sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Cyprus. That's Barnabas' home country. Tons of people there who need Jesus. Verse 5 tells us from Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They preached the gospel to the Jews first. That's what Paul said. Romans 1, right? We go to the Jew first. Here's Paul, this respected rabbi. It was learned under the, the uh, most respected teacher of that day, Gamaliel. So when they're rejected from the synagogues, they're going to make this, this easy jump to the Gentiles because they've got a plurality of leaders. They've got him and Barnabas, and now they've got John Mark with them, Barnabas' cousin, and they're preaching the word. Now there's something you need to know about preaching the word when you hear that phrase in the, in the book of Acts. When it says they're preaching the word and it doesn't say that anyone uh, opposed it, it means, it implies that the people who hear the gospel believe it and are saved and are baptized and are integrated into the, the community of believers. So they're sent by the Holy Spirit. He chooses and sends servants of the word. The church recognized the choice and sends servants of the word. It's a prime, uh, primary sender is God. Secondary sender is the church. And they're going out in ministry. Now, a lot of your Bibles say, uh, there's a heading, and it'll say, Paul's first missionary journey. And I just want to blow that up. I think you should just blow up your idea of what missions is here. Remember Acts 1.8. There's our outline for the whole book. Every Christian is a witness of Jesus, and missions is following Jesus' mission until he returns, wherever you are, from right where you are, all the way to wherever God sends you. So this was known as Paul's first missionary journey, and it wasn't. This was not his first you know, ministry rodeo here. He had been going with the gospel for years at this point. He'd been serving God in what you would say relative obscurity for 12 years. He had spent three years in Arabia, seven more in Asia Minor in Tarsus, and two more in Antioch. He's middle-aged by now. There might have been people that kind of forgot about him. And now he is being chosen by the Holy Spirit to be a pioneer in work to the Gentiles. Why, why do we ever get the idea that a missionary is someone who goes away, far away? Oh, you're going to Africa? You're a missionary now. You're going to Tustin? Well, God bless you. Bummer, you know, for you. Bakersfield? Oh. South Africa? Woo-hoo! Europe? All over the... No, wherever you're at, you're a missionary. You're a minister of Jesus Christ. You're a servant of the word. 
Maybe, by the way, you are in a period like Paul was in for 12 years of waiting and of preparation. And you're thinking, what is up with this? Because what I want to have happen isn't happening. Well, don't get angry. Don't get resentful that God isn't making it happen. Maybe he wants you to see what's right under your nose, right in front of you, like your household, like your neighborhood, like your small group. Serve God there. Do ministry work there. You delight yourself in the Lord, he's going to give you uh, desires aligned with his. Amen? And remember this, proclaiming the gospel is primary. We call all sorts of things ministry, don't we? The gospel comes first. That must be our focus. Preaching the gospel to individuals and groups. The word of God is paramount. First things first, people. First things first. Sometimes important things get set aside. Secondary things get top billing. It's happened to so many ministries founded on the gospel. Hospitals, schools, YMCA, whatever. Many have lost the gospel. They keep compassion, which is a good thing, and they lose the number one thing, the gospel. James 2 tells us, you gotta show it and tell it. Faith without works is dead. But the gospel without compassion is dead orthodoxy. Compassion without the gospel is heartless travesty. Cheating people. Go dig wells. That's a good thing to do. People won't die of thirst. But you dig a well and don't give them the gospel, they'll, they won't die of thirst, but they'll die and go to hell. So you set the table for the gospel with, with meeting needs, but you've got to give the gospel as you show compassion. Go and preach the word, don't lose the word. This, this Antioch church had spiritual leadership. They had spiritual worship. They had spiritual ministry. And lo and behold, every time the gospel is preached, there's going to be some kind of opposition. They had spiritual warfare. Barnabas' cousin John Mark is assisting them. They go across the island east to west as far as Pathos. It was the capital of Cyprus, Roman government, central um, center of the worship of Epaphrodite, uh, Venus, mythical Greco-Roman goddess of love and fertility. They had annual festivals every year to honor her, drew large crowds from Cyprus and the surrounding countries. And there they met a magician, Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. How dare him use that name? In verse 7, he's working for a man named Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. He, by the way, Sergius Paulus is the top-ranking politician uh, highest Roman official on Cyprus at this point. And he calls to Barnabas and Saul and says, I want to hear the word of God. So you got the, the top politician on Cyprus saying, I want to hear the word of God. So verse 8, um, Elamus, the magician, that's, his other, that's what his name means, is opposing them. You know why? He has been deceiving people with satanic magic and false prophecies, and he doesn't want to lose his job. Because his boss gets saved, he's out of a job. There's evil opposition. The devil's opposing the work of Christ in them. So Paul, in verse 9, he's also, uh, Saul, who's called Paul, from here on out in the book of Acts, he's Paul. Okay? Most Jews were given Jewish and Roman names at birth. They were interchangeable, Saul, Paul. But here he's going to evangelize primarily Gentiles, and so he's using the Roman name. It works better in those areas. Paul, from here on out. Paul means small, by the way. Reflects humility in contrast to Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And it says here that Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean, that he's filled with the Holy Spirit here? 
It's different than what was said of Barnabas in chapter 11, verse 24, where it says that Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. It's different because it's in the aorist tense, and what it means is a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. God's giving him power to say what he's about to say. It's like, you know, Holy Spirit turbo boost. It's a shot of B12. It's, it's oxygen. And all of the sudden, he comes out with, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you're full of villainy, the guy's wearing a mask. Are you going to keep making crooked God's ways? He is calling out evil. And he's doing it filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of Christians misunderstand the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a power for you to use. He is a person. The third member of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. Do not think of the Holy Spirit as a power you need to seize and use. Think of the Holy Spirit as God who wants to use you for his purposes. You see this contract in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer wants to get and use the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 13, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of and uses Barnabas and Paul. And Paul exposes this deceit. He declares blindness on the guy. He's got a laser beam on him and he says, you son of a devil, and, and the hand of the Lord is on you. Remember that the hand of the Lord can be on you for blessing and judgment. Here it's in judgment. You're going to be blind. You won't be able to see. What happened when Paul was blinded? He responded in humility, repentance. But Elamus was not humble. He wasn't repentant. He, he was still in Satan's grip. So immediately he's blinded. People are leading him by the hand. And what did Paul do? He, expo he exposed the guy's sin. He exalts Christ. The guy had been hearing the word of God. The, he's hearing the gospel, and he exposes the guy's sin. And in case you think that Paul is being harsh, remember this. There's a lot of mercy in this scene. God is merciful not to kill him on the spot. The wages of sin is death. And he was given an opportunity to turn from his sins. From all indications, he didn't take it. There's a place to call out evil. When it's in your face, don't back down. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is ferociously intending to feast on souls. Why do lions prowl? Why do they creep? They're trying to be sneaky? Well, it's because they don't have much stamina. And so they have to creep up to, to save their strength for the short sprint to their prey. See, lions are sprinters, not long-distance runners. They conserve their energy by prowling until the right time to attack. You resist the devil with the strength that Jesus supplies you. You will not be devoured. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, resist him firm in your faith. James 4, 7, resist the devil. He will flee from you. The devil sprints. He's looking for easy prey. You resist him, he will flee. 
Spiritual warfare is real. And it's going to be there when you're preaching the gospel. When you're living for Christ. This, this Antioch church had spiritual leadership, spiritual worship, spiritual ministry, spiritual warfare, and last, spiritual victory. Spiritual victory. Verse 12. It's just so simple. New believers are going to crop up in spite of opposition to the gospel. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's resources or blessings. If you preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, trust God with the results. This proconsul believes the gospel when he sees what happened. As God authenticated it miraculously by striking Elamus with blindness, he's astonished not at the miracle, but at the teaching of the Lord. Our struggle is not fleshly, it is spiritual. And there's only one weapon strong enough to win the battle, it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Paul did not have a ministry of miracles, by the way. He had a ministry of God's word accompanied by miracles authenticating God's truth. We don't need miracles to give credence to the gospel message when we're preaching the gospel. We have the whole Bible, the closed canon of scripture, 66 books providing all the authentication the gospel needs. God is doing miracles left and right but you don't need miracles to give credence to the gospel message. God brings spiritual fruit. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that would remain in the face of opposition. Because no one can shut God's open doors. You ever been locked out from somewhere and you can't get in? No one can shut a door God opens. So this guy is astonished at the gospel. He's amazed at the teaching of Jesus. What is the teaching of Jesus? Is the teaching of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, exalted, and coming again? The Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten from the Father, Son of God, God the Son, fully God, fully man, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, buried, bodily resurrected, ascended into heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, and coming again in bodily form for all who love him with blessing and for all who reject him with judgment. If you're an unbeliever today, please listen closely. You want to observe this about this passage. People matter to God. One of the first things you'll notice about this passage is it's stocked full of people. It's just people all the way, wall-to-wall people in this passage. Five prophets and teachers, a church full of unnamed people, an unbelieving magician named Elamus, and a politician named Sergius Paulus who's contemplating faith in Christ. And if you are not a believer, every life matters to God, from the youngest to the oldest, and God cares about where you will spend eternity. But are you like Elamus or like Sergius Paulus? Both were lost without Jesus. Salvation is 100% from God by grace on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ's finished work and shed blood, not by anything you can deserve, not by anything you can do. It is by God's grace alone, through his gift of faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So you need to believe if you're not a believer. Now believers, as I, as I close, I just want you to listen up please. 
You're going through a struggle with sin right now and you have an ongoing process of sanctification that God is bringing about and you look at your life, you look in the mirror and you just start to wonder, is anything really happening? Your sanctification and your future state of glorification, which you're enjoying some of even already, are provided by God's grace through faith in Christ. And we are privileged as believers to be a part of Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes in Orange and the surrounding cities and neighborhoods because Jesus is always at work in his people. So if you're a believer today, Jesus is working even if you don't know which decision to make. He is working if you're clouded and confused. He is working no matter what you're going through. He is working in you and through you for his glory if you belong to him. There are five marks of a spirit-filled, word-saturated church that embraces Christ's mission. We've seen them today. 